You may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Fuck, 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 fuck Brexit. You know, I really want a sword or a, 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 a cudgel or whatever it is, mace. That's communism. Chimpanzee society, baboon society, dolphin society. I have a red guard night blade, if I remember rightly. And I'm a DPS damage per second. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If someone listening to this doesn't know what DPS stands for, then... Well, they, they might think it's some weird porn thing. Chimpanzee society, baboon society, dolphin society. Just you, you run around and try in a mass group and try and kill people. That's communism. Fuck, fuck, fuck Brexit. You know, I really want a sword. The Israelis have shelled me. You know, don't worry about me. All the sick memes of, you know, really criminal shit was going on there. Welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party Podcast. Our episode today is going to revolve around our interview with journalist, author and broadcast newsman Paul Mason. Ex-economics editor of Channel 4 News, Paul has gone on to become an author of anti-capitalist books such as Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future, and his most recent release, Clear Bright Future, A Radical Defence of the Human Being. We invited Paul onto the podcast to talk about his recent book, his immortalisation in the form of Jonathan Pye, who I believe was based on his 2014 Bank of England rant, his career as a Nightblade DPS in the Elder Scrolls Online MMORPG, and also to challenge him on some of his past statements on topics such as immigration. And so without any further ado, here's the interview. I've recently finished reading your new book. You put a real emphasis on trying to find a humanist philosophy that can underpin pan-leftist struggle. So what, in your words, is the importance of centering humanism? Look, I think we're going to enter a fairly anti-humanist century. We've got the far right on the move. We've got um, algorithmic control encroaching on our lives through Facebook and and Cambridge Analytica. We're sitting in a university district here in in Sheffield. If I wandered into any of these um, social science departments, the idea that the human race exists would be a contested issue. That postmodernism has taught us that, you know, humanity is just a social construct. So... At some point this century, a machine is going to say, hey, on what basis do you, the humble human being, demand control over me, the machine, given that I've rigged the last 20 elections? I wanted in the book to try and say, well, if you want to say you're a humanist and that humanism is like an act of fuck you to the authorities, to people who are trying to control us and dehumanize us, there's got to be a theory of human beings. And so many of the implicit theories of human beings that, that confront us are um, anti-humanist. You know, we're already algorithms. We have no agency. We have no freedom. For me, humanism is based in the same teleological story that Karl Marx tells in his early manuscripts, 1844. And he says, look, we're, we're evolved as a, quite randomly as a species that can think, imagine, 
We're linguists, we're imagineers, we're cooperators, we're technologists, and therefore it is logical to think that, that over time we have a story that leads to our own self-liberation. That, that is what communism was for Marx in 1844, and it was what... I don't use the word communism. I don't like it, you know, because for, for my generation, it, it, it suggests the gulag. It suggests that horrible state dictatorship. But for Marx, communism was radical humanism. And interestingly, true naturalism, he said. Now, th these are the words of the 19th century. What does he mean? It, communism is humanism, is respect for the environment, is what he meant. I think that's a good starting point for the 21st century, uh, for rebuilding a left that wants to go somewhere, because the entire middle bit of my life you know, has been taken up with the left not wanting to go anywhere, wanting to resist, but to not propose a, a mega alternative. And I think that's one of the strengths of the book is that a lot of leftist writing is not about positive conception of what to do. It's it's a massive diagnosis of the problem, which makes you very depressed. And then you finish the book and you, you have this very pervasive feeling of dread. But it still feels like the the way in which you're defining humanism, it's still, it's defining it against technocracy, it's defining it against oppression through machines. There's a lot of writing about finding a philosophical underpinning for the humanism you're talking about. What is, what's the essential qualities of humanity that you think? Well, the, the number one quality is that unlike all other animals, we have a social history. Mm -hmm. That is, as far as we know, chimpanzee society, baboon society, dolphin society exists for definite, but we, we don't really know. We can't see a progression in it. There may be little progressions, really interestingly, so, interesting social innovations may exist within individual pods of dolphins, but we, and we can study these. I'm, my mind is open as to, uh, as to that, but there's no systemic social change. From stone tools to pottery takes us 300,000 years. From pottery to cities, 7,000 years. Cities to democracy, 2,500 years. Um, democracy to the steam engine, 2,000 years. Steam engine to the silicon chip with 4 nanometers thick, 200 years. That's the source of optimism. If you were looking at that from a massively wide angle, you'd say, why aren't we happy? And the reason is because during those millennia, every form of technological progress for human beings has taken the form of a hierarchical society in which people are oppressed. For me, the, the qualities of a human being are to do with change, not staticness. They're, they're to do with the fact that as our society develops, we can, and it doesn't go in one direction, we take these leaps and slides forwards and backwards towards freedom, towards the lack of necessity, that is the idea that food, the basic necessities, heat, shelter, etc., can be quite cheap, bordering on free, if we just develop society fast enough and and sustainably enough. This was the idea behind John Maynard Keynes' famous essay in the 30s, The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. He wrote it as a half joke. People take it really seriously now, but it was actually a lecture delivered to pupils at a public school. And he basically said, give it 100 years, we'll have what looks like communism, because compound interest, which was the jokey bit, economic development, will, will create enough that, that we begin to transcend the economic problem. The economic problem is there's not enough of everything, so we must have a market to distribute it. So if Keynes can, can envisage, even half-jokingly, a, a communist utopia, then the communists should be able to do it for, for real and for serious. And that's my answer. to When you say, what's the attribute of a human being? Yeah. The attribute of a human being is to struggle for freedom. That's mm -hmm. the essential attribute. attribute. I'm sure, you know, a materialist reading of, of most world religions, all world religions, has to see them as ideologies in which that struggle between hierarchies who are trying to justify their own position and the distribution of wealth, and then human beings who are trying to say, but, but we want to be free. In the book I write about the Axial Age, which is the period 800 BCE, 
to 200 AD CE, as we now call it. And I think we know a lot more about the material underpinnings of that period, the period of cities plus mercenary armies plus money plus humanistic religions from, you know, Buddhism, Confucianism, the later Jewish prophets and philosophers, Christianity. I think we can say that all those religions were the product of a particular period in human history where the human being stands up and says, you know what, not only do we know that we are separate from nature, which is what the Eastern religions had taught us, or the kind of mon- the polytheistic religions, not only do we know that we are separate from nature and its underling, we have an imperative to fulfil our own humanness. That, that's what I observe when I read now back, looking through the framing that I've created in this book, the, the, the humanistic religious traditions established in that period. To me, that's what humans are, that we are, we are imagineers and linguists and, and te- cooperators and technologists struggling to be free. And that just makes us very, very, as far as we know, unique on this planet, and we don't know about the other planets, or indeed the rest of the universe. I guess as someone who has had a lot of interest in the animal rights movement, a lot of the rhetoric around that doesn't want to us distinguish the human being as this sort of supreme being that has some special attributes. It's true that, that obviously if you were to encage a creature, it's not very long before they learn to be helpless. But mm. I also kind of think that applies very evenly to human beings. We've we've internalised a lot of our own helplessness. I, I guess I'm ill at ease with the idea that we've got some long-running teleology that can lead us towards some kind of predestined future. I think it's yeah. equally likely we'll have the boot coming on us forever. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the that, that's the reinterpretation of Marxism that Rosa Luxemburg made in her, in her famous phrase, socialism or barbarism. It's not predestined that we free ourselves because... The mode of progress is always hierarchical. People look at Marx and they think of he's kind of some mechanistic philosopher of universal progress. He isn't. He's, you know, the first line of the Communist Manifesto is that the, the class struggle ends either in a new domination or the mutual ruin of the t- contending classes. You know, the mutual ruin is possible. The proletariat and the bourgeoisie in cap- class society can destroy each other. After reading post-capitalism, where the solution seems incredibly tied up with technology. Yeah. Is this new book a reversal of your position before us? I no, don't see how it's no, that no, compatible. No, it is. I mean, in, in post-capitalism, what I say is that uh, there is a route one to a post-capitalist that is a non-market society. It's not socialism where you seize the, the, the economy, you centrally plan it within a scarcity situation, and you try and make human beings conform to the needs of the central plan. Instead, because information technology is unlike all other commodities in the sense that it disrupts the price mechanism, it makes some things cheap and some things free, some things should be free, they cost nothing to reproduce. Because it creates vast stores of utility, usefulness for free through the network effect, because it delinks work from um, wages and blurs the edges between work and non-work, and because it is inherently democratic, you know, if, if I discover a flaw in, in a computer program tonight, then everybody's copy of that program is updated tomorrow morning. So because of those four qualities, price disruption, network effects, blurring of work and wages, and democratization, we can use information technology, I argue, to rapidly free ourselves from necessity. We're, and if we decided we're going to use this, instead of creating monopolies whose sole purpose is to make something that should cost one penny, 99 pennies, like a music track. Instead of doing that, we we pursue cheapness 
and free utility, then what you create is a kind of wiki economy. You create an economy in which Apache, Linux, open source in general, wiki, wiki-based free information sources, that principle spills over so that you then get the anarchist bakery, the cooperative uh, local grocery. Then you get the organic farm in a city run, run collaboratively. Then you get the credit union. Then you get a bank like Triodos in the Netherlands that's got about two or three, four, five billion euros of money under, under management but does not, did, does not want to make a profit. That's the post-capitalist thesis. What wasn't there in the post-capitalism book was a theory of agency. Who will make it happen? Now, there, is, there was an implicit theory of agency. It's, it is, the, that it is the, the networked individual. It's all of the people exploited by the present forms of capitalism who, by rebelling and demanding a different form of economic activity and, and structure, will have to create an alternative to capitalism. At the same time, in post-capitalism, what I was what I was concerned about was the power of monopolies to stifle the economic potential of infotech. In this book, I'm concerned about the power of monopolies to strip our lives of agency full stop through surveillance and algorithmic control. And I started writing the book thinking that that was the main problem. And I think it is the strategic problem in the 21st century. But I, I, the more I studied the way technology is stripping us of agency and selfhood, the more I realized that the, the problem of now is the same thing. The eviscerated self that the neoliberal era has created, this performative human being behaving like a machine, is actually the entry-level drug for what comes next, which is when the Chinese state says, you know these behaviors you've learned in your 20 years on Earth as a market subject um, to the Chinese population. Well, well, now we've systematized them into a kind of machine logic and the machine now runs your life. I absolutely accept that climate change is the existential problem of the 21st century. An equally big problem would be if we lost the enlightenment. We lost the idea that verifiable thought, verifiable knowledge uh, was a thing and that instead all knowledge became relative and, and all truth claims were subjected to a machine owned by the government. It's, it's scarier than Orwell. Orwell's dystopia needed human beings to run it, but I don't think this one will. I'm going to move on to some much lighter questions. I thought this was going to be a comedy yeah, podcast. Right. I mean, <laughs> well, something I personally have um, been desperate to ask you is um, do you remember in 2014 there was a clip of you uh, going on an unscripted rant outside of the Bank of England? I do. Um, and I noticed that less than a year later, an actor called Tom Walker made a character called Jonathan Pye, yeah. who's also going on an unscripted rant on the streets of London. <laughs> I'm, so glad I, I'm so glad I inspired that meme, if I did. Is that, do, you, do you believe that Jonathan Pye is based on you? I, I think it could be. Um, but you, let me tell you the story of what happened then. So this is about the fifth bank scandal. And every time you do a bank scandal, you have to stand outside RBS, this ultra-posh uh, HQ in London Spitalfields, and do pieces to camera because it's always them, number one. It's nearly always them. There's a weird thing in the City of London of filming or taking photographs of buildings often brings the security guard out to try and arrest you, you know, because they work for a global bank with billions of pounds under management, they, they think that they have the power to sort of call the cops on someone who's filming. Now, on this day, this guy came out 
And he said, oh, you can't film the building. No, I'm standing on a public place filming the goddamn building. Mm-hmm. And, and I just said to him, Luke, why don't you turn around, go back in the fucking building. I'm afraid I didn't say that. And, and actually ask whether anybody's breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Because I'm here reporting on the biggest crime in your sector that's ever been reported. And I got really mad. The thing was, at that time, Channel 4 was trying to be edgy. Channel 4 News it was trying to be edgy. And they had this theory that if they did things on the internet, this was the management's theory, if they did things on the internet, then uh, Ofcom, which regulates TV, would take a lenient view as long as those things didn't actually go on the internet. Um, this theory was quickly disproved by that piece because um, the management of Channel 4, which buys Channel 4 News off ITN, went, went bonkers. And everybody had to do a retraining course on what the rules were. But the weird, you know, it wasn't just me. I didn't just do it and then put it on my phone mm-hmm. and it went out. It was filmed on a, on a TV camera. It, it was editorially managed. It was signed off by the most senior person I reported to. And they thought, this is great. And then the management was like, fucking hell, what have you done? You, 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 you. It, it was, and there was nothing libelous in it. It was simply my, my reaction. It was my genuine reaction. I was so angry. The, I mean, I know people whose businesses were destroyed by RBS. There was this thing called the GRG in RBS. What it was designed to do, the bank was fucked. The bank had a lot of bad debts on it. And in order to, to restore their status, they had to get all these bad debts from small businesses off. So they tried to manage them all to bankruptcy. And I have got friends who, an RBS guy turns up at their shop and they says, you know, uh, your overdraft limit's just been cut from 15 grand to five overnight. All businesses run on over. You're dead. And, you know, without going into the details, the, these guys were very depressed by that. You know, they'd put their lives into their small business. And then and then the next minute, I'm seeing the security guard tell me, you can't film our bank. Mm-hmm. This, to me, it's not the, the fact that individual people in RBS committed a crime, which they did, and I think they were uh, prosecuted and, and punished for it. It's the fact that the power system just rests on this implicit assumption that I can't film a building in the city of London. Sure. You know. so, so yes, I mean, good for Jonathan Pye. I mean, I hate RT, to be honest, so I never watch it. I think, is he, I think he's off RT now. What is he on, though? I think he might just be just li- going off the Facebook and YouTube stuff. Um, good. If more people got angry, there'd be more catharsis. You know, oh, it, no, you might not have been. Jonathan Pye's like... It's all written by a spiked online guy now. It's gone full like. Oh no, I know, I know. Oh, yeah. It's I know it's yeah. it's gone it's gone right wing, but but yeah. Anyway, but you know, good. You, it's quite good to be um, a meme. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to be a meme. Yeah, that will be the lasting legacy of that moment. This is another really uh, trivial question, but go for um, it. There's a point in the book where you're um, talking about people using technology who are externalizing their thoughts at certain times, and the example you use is laying siege to a castle in Elder Scrolls Online. Yes! Good. And I was thinking, why on earth he brought that up? I've outed not... myself as an Elder Scrolls uh, <laughs> Nightblade. I'm a right. Nightblade. What am I? I'm a Redguard Nightblade, if I remember rightly. So Redguards are a race. And oh, night... I'm well familiar with the Elder yeah, Scrolls. Nightblade, just for the yeah. readers, in case they don't know, <laughs> Nightblades are a particular kind of fighter. And I'm a DPS, damage per second. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if someone listening to this doesn't know what DPS stands for, they well, they, they might think it's some weird porn thing. Um, anyway, uh, so I'm a damage per second person, and you know what? I, I love the uh, collaborativeness of. It. I've been I, I, on and off. I have these periods where I do have to play. Uh, multiple. Do you think the collaboration of uh, Elder Scrolls Online is the post-capitalist? No, dream? but let me tell you the story. I've been playing multiplayer games since broadband came in. And, and I love the collaboration aspect of it. 
for me, it gets serious at the point where everybody's on the voice servers and there's always some kind of Arthur Mel going, fuck you, you know, fuck you, you know, you just fucked up that, you fucked that, you fucked, you know, it's like you think, and, and you know, you're thinking, and a lot of the American ones have got this fake, so guys, how are we going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've or got if that, it's not that, you're being called sick of blyats all yeah. the time. <laughs> but, so I don't uh, use a voice, uh, I don't use voice anymore. I just, I just zerg. I, I love Zergin. Do you know what Zergin is? From Starcraft. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Zergin in, in, in Elder Scrolls is the same thing. It's just you, you run around and try in a mass group and try and kill people. I think I find it quite gratifying, but I get to a point with it and then I just basically drop it. I mean, I'll tell you what, when it was... Have you been less interested in the single-player Elder Scrolls releases or are you mainly just an online guy? I played Skyrim when it came out. Came out. I, I was. Re- Do you know what I really loved about this? The, the single-player Skyrim was the music track. It was a superb... Soundtrack, and I realised that the production values and storytelling of these things were actually really good. I've got friends in the gaming industry who do do game design, and they're all trying to move away from that into little twee Shakespearean Mm, games. But I do think that you know people might think you know I'm a 59 year old person that it's weird for me to be taking part of it in this, but I think it's part of reality. I think there's more storytelling. I I don't know if you know, but I have an avatar in in Second Life. (laughs) That is me. It's called Paul Mason. I, 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 I think you might be the only person that plays Second Life. I don't. Themselves. I don't. I don't. Well, no, no, I've never touched it for more than I think it must be more than ten years now. But right. when it first came out, I did a feature on Second Life, and I went to yeah. to Silicon Valley to talk to the Second Life people, and they made me an avatar of myself. Oh, okay. And so I went and um, I built a little museum to the Paris Commune on my little patch of earth, and then I and, that, and then when all the kind of weird organized crime and you know sick you know sick. Uh, all the sick memes of you know really criminal shit was going on there. I got off it very quickly. But he's sitting there somewhere, this Paul Mason. Of course, he couldn't have any fun. I mean, I realised that everybody has it as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as some kind of an alternative ego and they go and do all kinds of really crazy things. But I'm sitting there with my real face and my real name, so I'm just going, hi. Yeah, you've really come at it the wrong yeah, way. Yeah, I've, I've come at it the wrong way there. <laughs> uh, but but you know, I think multiplayer games are, are really... We know what they are. And isn't it weird if I say, went to Newsnight's office and said, you know, what a, there'd be one little nerdy guy you know, sitting in the corner who knew what it was. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people claim not to know what any of it is. And so that means they don't, they're missing the movies. It's like you've been sitting through the 1930s yeah. and you've missed the talking pictures. It's a so, pretty wild state of affairs with video games in particular in that if you look at the figures, they're wildly popular, like one in five people must play. But in casual conversations, a lot of people pretend they've never heard never of it. Never heard of it, yeah. Who's Mario? What's that? There'll be, a, there'll be some good sociology to be to be written. I was fascinated to find that Yanis Varoufakis was the chief economist of a of a of a was it elite? I can't remember. Eve Online. Eve Online. He's in Eve Online. No, no, it wasn't Eve Online. It was some. <laughs> no, he's the, he was a chief economist of a games company in San Francisco in Potrero Hill. So he's a chief economist. Could be elite. It could be. Elite anyway, he, he he claimed to have been the chief economist, and I, I'm fascinated by the economics of, of all these multiplayer games. I mean, obviously, because it's what are we talking about? We're talking about scarcity. These are artificially created scarcities. In fact, you know, I really want a sword or a a, a, a cudgel or whatever it is, mace called Bahrara's Curse. Okay, because it's a big, heavy fucking thing that I need to hit people on the head. And the, of course, what I'm going to have to do is pay some gold. You know, gold, gold to buy it. But in reality. Everybody could have everything. So you've got you know, everybody, as long as a copy of it exists on the server, every player could have everything. And then what would happen? That's communism. When everybody could have all the different swords, shields, recipes, 
drinks that are in this world for free, we, there probably would be no fighting because you're only, you're only fighting to, to accumulate the experience points and the gold to buy the ship. When ESO, when Elder Scrolls Online first came out, I, I designed with some friends who were anarchists um, the idea of trying to form a commune in it. Mm-hmm. And I've got the concept document. Um, and we, the idea was we'd go into one of the player versus player arenas, which is called Cyrodiil in uh, ESO, and we'd just sit there. We wouldn't fight. And we'd form a little village of different people from each faction because you're meant to kill each other. Mm-hmm. You, there's a sign saying, hey, this is the enemy. This is, this is how much you've got to hit them until they die. And we'd sit together and form a kind of commune. You, what happens is you can, for people who don't know it, you can create I- items like you make a bow or a cup or whatever or a chair and we give them away for free. Rather than selling them, all the price will be zero. But... Life's too short to do things like that. And, <laughs> and, and in any case, you, the, yeah. the killing things is quite a lot of oh, fun. And it's a fucking waste of time. That's the other thing. You know, in the end, after, after about two weeks you know, of, of binge playing sometimes, I just think, right, that's the end. Go back to my script. Go back to my play, my film script. But I don't know. I, I think, why do you think people are so en- enwrapped in the sociality of it? Of online, of online gaming, yeah. I think one of the big things is not just the anonymity, which people say is why people end up griefing or being mean to each other, but everyone's internalised so many negative thoughts about themselves, their voice, their yeah. appearance, every external aspect of their own body. So you can be like, well, I'm just this cat person now and I can jump over a mountain. Who's going to have a go yeah. on me now? As an aside, after our interview, I ended up looking at Paul's jaunt into Second Life. And while footage is no longer available, there are still a couple of pages in a small photo gallery detailing a 2005 Newsnight feature on Second Life. They made custom skins for Paul Mason and Jeremy Paxman and then invited the public at large to participate in what they called an avatar party. Uh, They made a small reconstruction of the Newsnight set, which anyone who could log into Second Life was welcome to access, which wasn't very many people. Uh, The instance filled up almost immediately. Uh, Second Life servers can only hold about 30 people, and there are enough people logging in to try and access the Newsnight event to cause problems with the global servers. Uh, There are some pictures you can find of a low-poly Newsnight set filled with furries and people dressed as mid-noughties goths. And then apparently after a while, a number of people managed to log in using identical soldier avatars who proceeded to stalk Paul Mason and mime slashing at him with a knife. Please, if anyone could find footage of this interview, DM me immediately because it sounds incredible. Okay, that's it. Back to the interview. Before I let you go, yeah, go. I want to address things that have come up in recent and semi-recent politics outside of the scope of the book. Yeah, good. So one thing I remember you saying a few years back, which I've remained a bit confused by, is that you made a few statements on immigration mm. that, correct me if I'm wrong, were sort of an attempt to triangulate a consensus regarding immigration. Lack of consent for free movement caused Brexit. That's what happened. Um, and I, in a book chapter I've written, in a book called The Great Regression, I tried to explore where that came from. What? Why was it? Now, a lot of people say it's because uh, it suppressed wages. You know, East, people say, well, East European migration suppressed wages. It did a bit, in, and in some sectors, a lot. What it did is it squashed the ability of people to get off the, the minimum wage. That's solvable by labour you know, labor law changes. The real problem I observed in a place like Lee, where I come from, which is part of Wigan, was the resentment that people had 
that first, the bourgeoisie now has 2.7 million people who don't have a vote to exploit. You can't vote in the national election. Next was that all the other, the, the classic immigration story they've been told is that people arrive, they accept, quote unquote, our values, you know, whatever they are, uh, but they fit in. Eventually, our values become a bit of their values. So, you know, chicken tikka masala, kebabs shops and whatever. But that's been the story. The story with European migration was that there was no requirement to fit in. Now, a lot of Poles and, and Lithuanians do want to fit in. They, they, I interviewed a Polish guy and said, I want to join the army. You know, I join your army. I see it as my army. But the, the existing population only saw it as, as people with rights, but not responsibilities. And I think that was a source of resentment. Now, if I could have persuaded Corbyn during the, the re referendum campaign to say, we'll ask for, or even Cameron, we'll ask for a temporary variation on free movement so that we can set right what we need to set right and then restart it. If I could have persuaded him to do that, I would have. I tried, actually, and they wouldn't have any of it. And so, bang, we lose the, we lose the referendum. Now, I mean, if we go back into the single market or we stay in Europe or, or in the single market, we have to accept free movement. It is it's part of the deal. But for me, that's not a socialist principle. I mean, the neoliberal, the, the, the European Union is a neoliberal construct. It, that free movement has been designed right now, and its effect right now is to make labour weaker in, against capital. I want to get to a situation where there are open borders, but you get there in stages. I also want there to be, uh, I want everything to be free. You know, I want, I want you know, everything in society to be for free, but we, we need to take steps to get there. In Britain, we're lucky, but also privileged, because the real thing that is driving the far right in the world, which is refugees, they, they can't get here. If I were to have my way with a, with a policy, it would start like this. I would start with refugees. I would say, refugees has an absolute right to come to this country and claim asylum under the Geneva Convention. They, to me, are the people that I want most for our policy to accommodate. Now, what does that mean? If we say there's 200,000 people waiting to come here from the, the camps of, of refugees just outside Syria, in Lebanon, uh, Jordan, and, and in Turkey, we could make labor market uh, assumptions about that. We need so many doctors, we need some nurses, we need to look after their children, let's accept them. Now, if we did that, I'd also say then, well, in an ideal world, do you need so many people who already live in Poland, Lithuania, etc., to come? I would like to have a, a, a program where migration could be managed via the labour market. Not by saying, you can't come into our country. Of course, people are welcome to come in. But ultimately, if we're going to have an industrial policy that says we need 10 new industrial centres in South Yorkshire, mm -hmm. we're, going to, we're going to need people. We need to be able to, to understand where they come from and try and make sure they come here and not just go into a kind of bed sit on the edge of London for no reason. I don't think there's anything anti-socialist about trying to manage migration. Practically, if we're going to stay in the European Union, which is what I want us to do, we have to accept free movement. We have to mitigate its negative effects for people who already live here, and there are negative effects, and we need to have an argument with people. So I don't take a liberal view on free movement. And when it comes to open borders, though it is my ultimate uh, aim, so is free love. But every time right now somebody says the word open borders, a new person turns fascist because they, all they can see 
is refugees coming without without control. A lot of people characterise my... Didn't you just advocate for refugees should be able to come in? You you said it was like Eastern European workers that you wanted to... Yeah. But you are advocating for refugees. I'm advocating for for, for refugees uh, have an absolute right... Economic migrants have a relative right. Now, a lot of people, anti-racists say, are oh, you creating two tiers of migration? I am, yes, because because we've signed the Geneva Convention. If I'm fleeing from Syria, shitting myself that I'm going to be killed or murdered or assassinated or, work, or all the kinds of things that can happen to you, and I arrive at Dover and say this, I don't want to be standing next to somebody who says, I'd like a job. I have an absolute right to cross this border, and that is the Geneva Convention. There is a hierarchy of need in movement across borders. It, the point is to say, if you're starving and you're insecure and you feel that you're... Most people who arrive have a mixture of, a mixture of economic and, and political insecurity. There's two, there's two things. Practically, I want us to stay in the European Union or the single market if we can't stay in the European Union. Therefore, practically, I have to defend freedom of movement. It, it, we have to do things in Britain that prevent bosses using freedom of movement to say recruit only Polish workers into a into a, a workplace to hyper-exploit people. We, that's one thing. But let's detach that problem from the problem of the refugees. You know, that one million plus people who came in 2015 to Europe may not be the last surge. That was a geopolitically caused surge. That is, the Syrians bombed their own population and Erdogan turned the tap, allowed them to, to come across to, to disrupt uh, Western society. It's quite clear that that happened. Next time, it may, may nobody may be in control. If we get droughts, famines uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, breakdowns of order in North Africa, that's our problem. That's our problem. It's not their problem, it's our problem. We have to, we have to mobilise resources to, to move people out of drought areas, out of areas that are facing famine or civil war or genocide, like in Rwanda. Or What I'm trying to say is that the British political discourse on, on migration has been very skewed towards economic issues. That has given us this kind of free pass, which our, our European colleagues don't have. They have to decide if a million people come because they're terrified of dying, do we let them in? And the Germans let them in, good. You know, I mean, they did it in a chaotic way and they did it in a way that didn't explain it to anybody. So that's my that's my position. Uh, you have to fight what's in front of you. Before the election, before the referendum, what was in front of us was a xenophobia about my, about economic migration that I think the left could have done more to assuage. We could have said, at least we see your point. But so but many then, people. But then, didn't what you're see saying sounds it was a xenophobia fueled anxiety about economic migration that surely we wouldn't want to justify. You wouldn't want to say yes, fair enough. That that is a problem. Eastern Europeans are stealing your jobs. No, you, I would never say East Europeans are stealing your jobs. In fact, you never not- explicitly say. It. I just mean if you were to move, to, it doesn't sound like if you were to say we will let people in only if they have the jobs or skills that we're looking for no, within our well, economy. How is that that different from like a points-based migration system? Well, you know, if we were outside the European Union, I would advocate a, a I would advocate a skills-based. Uh, migration system. So here's what I would say is my local uh, Tanduri, Bengali owned, uh, wants people to work there. He wants to bring his all his family from Bengal. Let them in. They're British. They contribute to British society. That If we were free to do that, that would be an entirely legitimate thing. You wouldn't simply open the border because you've got a welfare society. You have to be able to say 
to the people who are contributing to it, on what basis do we allow other people who haven't yet contributed, on what basis do we allow them to access this welfare society? Tourists, yes, obviously. Uh, people in high need, refugees, yes, obviously. Can everybody come? No, obviously. And you lose consent for welfare. If people are going to say, well, everybody comes, you lose consent for the welfare state. But the point is, listen, the point is we're not on our own. We haven't got that freedom. We're in Europe. I want us to stay in Europe, and therefore I want us to accept free movement. I do want us to promote uh, more positive attitudes to migration from the former British Commonwealth because we have we have a debt to the people whose, life, whose grandfathers we you know, put in jail and starved and the rest of it, from Bangladesh to, to Kenya, to the Caribbean. I want us to, you, the, the big problem, why did 27% of Asian people and, and 18% of black people vote for Brexit in 2016? Because they felt, I think, um, that they weren't being listened to on their migration issues. In the end, it's academic. The Geneva Convention exists. We must accept refugees. The refugees are not running away for economic reasons. They're running because they're terrified. The, the left has to get its priorities straight on this. The, the, any idea that a refugee is the same thing as someone who quite rightly would like to better themselves, would quite like to move here, is not right. It's just not right under international law. I, I get I get that obviously there is a distinction between someone fleeing for their life and someone fleeing for a better life. That There is a distinction there. I guess I find it difficult to square the circle of one of your arguments you put with the book is that you don't want people to be slaves and metrics towards the economy. But, yeah. but then if you can only come in, if you can contribute towards that economy, then you're just plugging people in as well, no, modules you, into no, a larger you, system. You, you shouldn't be only be able to come in. I mean, the refugee comes in whether they contribute but or But outside whatever. of the refugee, you'd say you, if we weren't in the European economic area and had to accept freedom yeah. of movement, if we were Australia or Canada, you'd yeah. say let's have a points-based system, yeah. whereas oh, well, we've got a new factory that needs people in it. You can come in only if the skill's relevant to that. You're just turning people into uh, well, economic well, I'm not turning... I mean, the fact is the system turns them into that anyway, and you have to manage a capitalist system if you want to run it. Look at the way Canada operates. Canada, the, you know, the left in Canada is, you know, the, the, the mainstream left, the Labour Party in Canada, the NDP, is critical and at times opposed to the way the Canadian Liberal government has brought in you know, lots and lots of skilled people, but also lots of lots of relatively unskilled people, and the, the effect has been to create, as far as they are concerned, a downward pressure on wages. So even the Canadian model has its problems. But if Britain was on its own and had a migration policy it could set completely on its own, I would advocate a very progressive green card system that open to everybody in the world, from China to Indonesia to Kenya, blah blah blah. That's what I would do. We would have to honour the debt, the, the, the free movement commitment. We would have to. I would be in favour of giving the 2.7 million European citizens unconditional citizenship whenever they want it. So the, the same rights as citizens, full stop, forever, because uh, they made a contribution to UK. The migration policy need not be the need not be owned by the right. You can own it and, and create social justice outcomes um, by having it, but the. There is also the question of universality, the universality of human rights. Universal human rights are a thing that I want to fight for. And in particular, because the far right sees them as an imposition on native populations. You know, the far right says the human rights of a Romanian guy who's been uh, jailed for a, a crime that he's committed 
uh, prevent him being deported? Well, they do. That's what human rights are for. They're universal. Now, in defending the universality of human rights, the fact is that in the Declaration of Human Rights, the Universal, Universal Declaration, and in the Geneva Conventions that it embodies, refugees have a privileged status. Universal human rights doesn't give everybody on the planet the right to move across borders yet. One day it will, and I will. I, I will. I doubt I'll live to see that day. When I, when when it does, I'll be fucking you know ecstatic. But until it does, our job is to prevent the West going fascist. That's our, our job. The rest of your life, the rest of my life, it is doable. I think through humane and progressive migration policies. One of the things that really pisses me off is the fact that we, Britain by standing back from the European Union now, even though we're trapped in it, you know, as far as the Tories are concerned, we aren't taking part in the actual debates that Europe is having. And only the left, only the left, you know, the, the left groups that I support, Podemos, even France-Ansemise, you know, uh, Mélenchon's group, which is seen as economically nationalist, they've been pretty good on the rights of, of the sans-papiers and the inward-bound migrants and refugees. Only the left stood for a relatively open Europe. It, what characterises the centre and the right and the far right and some social democratic parties now in Europe is that they increasingly want to create a fortress Europe. Well, there's no point creating a for, fortress Europe. It's 500 million people. Apparently, Spain is 10 million people short in, in, in 50 years' time because of demographics. We need more people. We need 100 million people. What is it? The OECD says 130 million people need to move from the south to the north in the first half of this century to keep the, the tax and spend, the fiscal dynamics of the north of the world solvent. So let's manage it. So that's my position. Yeah, it doesn't fit with a lot of sort of knee-jerk reactions. It doesn't fit with a lot of it, but I think it is consistent because I have supported the rights of every refugee you know, case that I've ever been asked to support. And I absolutely support and have campaigned alongside the European citizens in this country for their full rights. So I don't see it, it makes me some kind of a reactionary. But I do think the left needs to think, you know, it needs to think honestly about what what it says to Joe Blow sitting outside, you know, here in Sheffield. We, if, 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 if migration does create stresses, the first thing to do is accept that that's happening and then have an argument with people. What I think the Tony Blair generation did is they never accepted it was happening. They said, you're making it all up. You're just racist. The, the lived experience of a lot of people was that they were not making it up. So it was the Gordon Brown bigot woman. Well, you know, I don't want to make a judgment about her, whether or not no, she I was mean, a bigot. This, yeah. this was why Gordon Brown, one of the big reasons that Gordon Brown lost his power is that he called a woman a bigot yeah. while getting into a car. This is the, this is the thing. That... Yeah, so... So, but no, I, I think Brown was less culpable. Brown was thinking about these things. Brown was very troubled by working class rejection of migration. Tony Blair didn't even see it. Tony, Tony Blair's people, the economists who predicted there wouldn't be many people arriving are the same economists now who say it, it didn't have any effect on wages. And it had a marginal effect. You can't say it didn't have an effect. The Bank of England has found it had an effect. The main impact was not on wages. It was on the way people felt about migration. And nobody cared until UKIP came along. And I, as a journalist, I was reporting the early UKIP stuff. And it was, it was frightening, the articulacy of the people who were behind it. They weren't fascists. They were quite normal people. If we'd have at that point said, we see your point, you've got the wrong end of the stick, 
we're going to do something, let's discuss it. It might have headed some of them off, but all they were met, all they were met with was disdain. And now a lot of them are racists and a lot of them are I mean, UKIP. Sure. Yeah. And it leaves us in a, the, the mess we're in now. Yeah. I guess for my last question, in the outcome of the European elections, you've written a piece of The Guardian pushing to be pushing for Labour to become a full-throated uh, Remain Reform yeah. party. And that's causing you a lot of grief online at the moment. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I, I, the Israelis have shelled me. You know, don't worry about me. I, you know, I've 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 been in in a in a machete wielding mob in Nairobi. I, I don't worry about what people oh, say. Sure, I, mean, yeah, you know, I don't give a shit. Basically, <laughs> is my attitude. Okay. Well, I guess my last question is: We're talking about the man on the street. Why is it so important for there to be a political triangulation on immigration to create a consensus? But you're not advocating the same triangulation in regards to with Brexit. You want to push Remain. Look, I'm not a triangulator with the man on the street, the person on the street's views on migration. I'm triangul- I'm tr- what I'm trying to do with migration is say that there's, the, the, there is an economic and logic and there is also an absolute right. For me, the universality of human rights means that they are absolute for refugees. Now, the, the, when we come to... Brexit, we're not in the world of human rights. We're, we're in the world of grubby outcomes. We're, we're in the world of a binary outcome. There's, I now think with, with Theresa May going, there'll be a new Tory prime minister, maybe even by the time this podcast goes out, creates a situation where soft Brexit becomes... I wouldn't say never. There's probably a 10% chance of a soft Brexit. Some Labour rebels uh, deliver it. But the more likely chance is that the Tories go for a ultra-hard Brexit and they want to get it through threatening no deal. No deal is a disaster. The Labour movement needs to uh, resist it. The way you resist it is to fuck Brexit. You know, that's going to be my slogan this summer. Fuck Brexit. So within that, I want to be able to have the argument in these working class communities where people have rejected the European Union, that, look, you want more autonomy from Europe, you want more democracy, and Europe for sure takes sovereignty away from you, but all the solutions that are being sold to you give you less sovereignty. What frustrates me is is that the inability of relatively intelligent politicians to say this, you want more freedom, but what you've just signed up to is what they said on that documentary, Britain is now a colony of Europe, through signing up to a soft Brexit. So it's it. if you want more freedom, you've got the wrong thing. Um, we've got quite a good deal that gives us a say. We don't like, I don't like what Europe is. I think it's a neoliberal construct. I think it's a hubristic um, project, you know, full of people like Juncker who cannot see the problems that they're creating. Let us, alongside you, try and solve this problem. And above all, because it's now become also a culture war in Britain, a lot of my friends on the left don't want to fight the culture war. Well, my advice to them is what Trotsky said about World War I. You may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Sooner or later, somebody will walk into this pub and say, take down that notice. And it won't be fascism. It'll be, you know, guys like in America, you know, like when you meet the kind of um, Confederate Viking, you know, uh, clans in America with their with their leathers adorned in kind of KKK weirdness. It will just be that they'll exert a social pressure on you, your liberated society. You'll start to feel it, just like Christopher Isherwood in um, in Cabaret is feeling, and suddenly the guy next to him in the comedy club or in the Cabaret has the swastika on their arm. You think, fucking hell, where did that happen? Well, that's going to happen unless we stop this xenophobic wave 
And what that, that means for me is that the progressive majority in British society have to, obviously they have to maintain their differences. You know, all the debates, whether it's transgender, whether it's migration, we could have them, but in the end, the progressive half of British society needs to defeat fascism. Otherwise, it will defeat us. And you know what I think is that, I don't know if you remember the Jules Rimet trophy. Uh, when you won it three times, you got to keep it. That's why Brazil kept it. And then it got stolen by somebody. And, you know, I think that if we defeat fascism twice, you know, once in the 30s, once now, we get to keep democracy. Because that's it for fascism then. I mean, literally, its base is among old, isolated people. And we are a young, connected, networked, liberated people. And I think that if we get rid of fascism again, it'd be very hard for it to come back. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you for your time. Yay. That was great. Good. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our guest for this episode was Paul Mason. Our title theme was produced by Ella Jean. The additional track Robo Bozo was produced by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. All podcasts are subject to algorithms beyond our control, so if you're able to like, subscribe, leave reviews, or in other ways feed pellets into the machine so that we can succeed, our gratitude will be unending. Thank you.